Today, Pastor Javen begins a new series called My Hope is In. Over these next four weeks, we're going to look at who our hope is in when we are followers of Christ. Today, we'll start with understanding that our hope is in a wonderful counselor. Take a moment to pause and pray, preparing your heart for today's service. So, we're going to jump in today into a new series together uh, called My Hope is In. Uh, we, um, we have said that the last verse that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we see, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he gave us three qualities that are important to our walk with Christ, right? Three qualities that are very important to us as we walk with Christ. Faith, hope, and love, which he said was the greatest of these. We just finished up a series called The Greatest of These, where we looked at love and what it means, what God's love looks like in our life and how we can demonstrate God's love. Uh, we looked at that through the lens of three different minor prophets. If you missed that, you can always go online and catch it. Uh, you can find ways to watch and listen online on our website. I encourage you to go back if you did. But today we're going to start a series looking at hope, what our hope is, and more specifically, who our hope is in, who our hope is in, because that is very important. Hope for the believer is an anticipation or an expectation that God is at work in our life. And he is at work even when we may not see him working, right? God is always at work. And our faith is anchored by that hope that we have in, in God and in Christ. See, hope for the believer is not just a wishful thinking. Hope is a person. First Peter, in, in Peter's first letter, in verses 3 through 4, he said these words. He said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of through his resurrection from the dead. And in verse 4, Peter said, And into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So this hope that we have is in a person. Jesus Christ personified our hope. So the restoration through the relationship with God we have, our our clinging to, to, to an eternal promise and eternal hope all comes from the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at who that hope is as described by the prophet Isaiah. Maybe you remember this verse. Maybe you've heard this verse before. Isaiah prophesied years and years ago, hundreds of years before Jesus would even be born. He prophesied and he said, for unto us, a child is born unto us. A son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. Right? And he said, and he will be called, what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? This is who our hope is in. This is the one that our hope is in. And you may hear that verse and you'll say, well, now that's a Christmas verse. That verse comes at Christmas and we're not even past Thanksgiving yet. So why are you starting up with a Christmas? Well, let's, you know, this is the great debate, right? When does Christmas start? Right. Well, let's just let's let's have a little audience participation. Let's see who's already started Christmas. How many of you have already started putting up your Christmas decorations or maybe today you're going to start putting up your Christmas? Day? All right. There's a lot of hands. How many of you have already finished your Christmas decorations? Yeah. OK. So look, we got some hands up. How many of you have already started your Christmas shopping? Christmas? Yeah. No, OK. Let's see. That's how many of you have already finished your Christmas shopping? Anybody? All right. See, we've got some that are even. All right. Yeah. How many of you already started listening to Christmas music? You, that's, look, all right, see, this is the thing. 
right? I get it. We're, we're not past Thanksgiving yet. I get that. You know, we're moving. We're, we're going, we're going that direction. We're going to be thankful. But, but, uh, but this verse, let me tell you this verse, when Isaiah prophesied this, he didn't have Christmas in mind. Like we think about Christmas. All right. Isaiah wasn't thinking about Hallmark movies and Hallmark cards. Okay. He went, Oh, this will be good. Cause they will love this. They'll make a killing off of this verse right here. Right. I mean, that, <laughs> that wasn't Isaiah's thoughts. He was prophesying our hope. He was prophesying what was to come. See, the, the, the moment that they were in, this was a time of great concern for the nation of Israel and, and for the king at that time, King Ahaz. Uh, because Assyria, we mentioned this briefly last week when we were talking about the prophecy of Hosea. Assyria was forming an army and getting ready to attack Israel. King Ahaz knew this and he knew what was going on. So Isaiah came to Ahaz and he began to speak as a prophet to the king. This is what happened uh, in, the, in the nation of Israel throughout, you know, God allowed them to have kings, but there was always a prophet that was going to be the voice of God to the king. Now, the king wouldn't always choose to listen to the prophet, which we're going to see here in just a second. But Isaiah goes to the king and, and it actually starts in Isaiah chapter 7. And then it kind of builds up to the moment that we see in Isaiah chapter 9, those verses that we see there. But let's jump back into Isaiah chapter 7 and just kind of look at this conversation that Isaiah has with Ahaz. And look at what Isaiah is telling him. It starts in verse 10. It says this, later the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. He says to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want. As high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. He said, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. He sounds, he, he sounds very spiritual, right? But then Isaiah said this. He says, well, listen well, you royal family of David. And there's some exclamation that's going with this. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right, then. The Lord himself will give you the sign. You don't want to ask for it? Then he's just going to give it to you. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then we'll jump to chapter nine in those verses where this prophecy kind of begins to come to a crescendo. And he says, for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. See, that's why we can be at peace today because the government rests on his shoulders. And he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask God for a sign. Isaiah or Ahaz doesn't want to do it, right? He doesn't want to ask God for a sign. We'll talk more about that in just a moment, about maybe why Ahaz doesn't want to ask God for that sign. But Isaiah tells him a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son that will be called Emmanuel. And you may wonder, well, how does a prophecy that's not even going to come to fulfillment for hundreds of years later 
even benefit Ahaz in this moment, in this time, in a very real, a very stressful situation that he is facing with the nation of Israel? How does that benefit them? Well, here's the thing that's interesting about Old Testament prophecy, and you can get really deep with this, but but a lot of times you see that in Old Testament prophecy, there is a temporary fulfillment and there's an ultimate fulfillment. When you read throughout or, or read on in, in, in these passages of scripture with Isaiah, there is a, you, you see what many historians and scholars say, a temporary fulfillment that took place through someone. But it wasn't through a miraculous virgin birth because the word virgin can actually just mean as well this, that, a virgin who gets married and then conceives and has child. So it's talking about a woman that may have saved herself for that time the way that God declares for it to be. And so a child was born and then a child came up. But there is an ultimate fulfillment to this as well. Because God knew that for there to be an ultimate cure to what mankind was facing, there had to be an ultimate fulfillment. Right? See, God would intervene and God would work in different ways throughout times and in situations. You know, we, we've seen even over the last several weeks through the prophets that spoke to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, we said they had resolve. They had the will to want to try and to want to do. And, and God may would fix things temporarily here and there. And he would give them advice of how to do it. But they would always fall back into a trap. So it wouldn't be until God in his perfect timing would send Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ would become our ultimate salvation. As, Matthew, as, as the angel would declare to Joseph and Matthew would write these words down in Matthew chapter one, verse 23, he would say, look, the virgin will conceive a child and she'll give a birth. She'll give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, the angel is, is comforting Joseph in this moment. And he's telling him, look, I know that you want to divorce Mary because she is now pregnant with a child. And you're wondering where that child comes from. This is the miraculous birth of the, of, of the virgin that God spoke about hundreds of years ago, Joseph. So rest easy in knowing that God is speaking and working through Mary and wants to work through you as well. And when he is born, the people will begin to look at him and say, God is with us. This is Emmanuel. This is the prophet that was spoken about years ago. See, our, our, our biggest problem, the root of our problem is separation from God. Separation that comes from sin. And God knew that it was time to, to, that there would come a time and knew it was going to be a time that it would, we would have to stop mending the problem and fix the problem at its root. Because man couldn't do it by the law alone. See, there's not a cure that comes from man banding together to make the world a better place. Now that sounds like good speech and good rhetoric. We need to band together and make the world a better place. Well, we might for a moment, but when we band together under our own will and under our own volition and under our own purpose and our own direction, then eventually that band, something's going to come up between it because we see it happen all the time. Pastor Tim Keller said it this way. He said, the Bible doesn't say that from the world, a light has dawned. In other words, it doesn't say that up from out of the world, a light has dawned. Scripture says that 
upon the world, a light has dawned. In other words, Keller says that what it's saying is that the world is a dark, dark place. And the only way it can get salvation is from someone outside of the world. That someone was the light, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. See, we pray for God to deliver us from the bad health and the sickness that we have. And, and we should. We can, there's no problem with praying for that things. But, but God came to cure and he came to defeat the curse of death through Jesus Christ. We pray for, in, uh, uh, for, for God to work in injustice and broken relationships. Jesus came to take care of the sin and selfishness that creates the injustice in the broken relationships. We pray for God to do something to the ones that are always attacking us, the ones we call our enemies. Jesus came to deal with the hatred that creates enemies in the first place. Jesus came to deal with everything at the root of the problem. And so when when he was born, the angel told them, name him Jesus, because it means he saves. He, God comes to save and he would be called as Isaiah says. And as the angel told Joseph, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So God is with us and he has come to save us. See, naming, naming your kids is, is, is an important thing. Often we don't just typically name our kids, whatever. Oh, that sounds good. Let's go with that. A lot of thought typically goes into naming your children, right? I know when, when Jenny and I had our kids, she gave me the privilege and the opportunity to name, to come up with the middle names. Because those were the names that no one would ever hear, ever know, realize they're part of their life. So I got to come up with the middle names. She came up with the first, no, we, we worked together, but she was very prominent in that. And they were great first names. And so, and, and we looked at the meaning behind those names. Well, what do these names mean? Because we don't want to name them something and it means, means wimpy dork. You know, we don't want, you know, that kind of thing, right? So we, we kind of thought through, what does this name mean? And then we had our, a third child. And, and again, I got to name the middle name. I had that right and privilege. And we were talking, okay, she's like, I think I found the perfect name for our third child. She wanted to stay in the G family, right? Because we OGs like that. No, I'm just, uh, but she wanted to stay in the G family. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I told Pastor Brian, sometimes, okay, I need to check myself sometimes. But we, we, we want to stay. And so she said, I found the perfect name, Grayson. Because it means son of a gray-haired man. I said, there you go, baby. Let's just go with that. Because that is, there's no doubt. There's truth to that, right? So, so you know, names, names are important. And names were even more important uh, in these days. There was a lot of time that went into thinking about who you're going to name their child and what our child is going to be named. And so when he, Jesus was named Jesus and he was called Emmanuel, there is importance to understanding what he is called and what he is known as. And Isaiah says that 
One of those would be wonderful counselor. Now, when you look at that, that name, wonderful counselor, the word wonderful itself is a word that, that means beyond understanding. Too wonderful to even be able to describe. The word is deeper than just saying, oh, that's wonderful. You know, we were, we, we watched the World Series in this past week and, you know, and we watched the Braves win the World Series. Last time I got, I got to do that was I was a freshman in college, you know, in the dorm room with a bunch of guys watching it happen. And uh, so we're watching that. And after it was over, I'm listening to the guys talk and some of them share, you know, their thoughts about it. And over and over, kept hearing the phrase, but I just, I can't put into words. I can't describe this moment. I can't explain what's happening, you know. And here's the thing, as marvelous as that experience is for them, God is even greater than that moment and that experience, His wonder is so large and so amazing and so uh, magnificent. It's it's too hard to even exclaim and understand the experience of who God is. And then he says he's a counselor, which means that he has the ability to advise, to instruct, and to guide. But here's the thing that word counselor is saying, he can instruct and he can guide and he can advise from a place of authority. So get this, what that means about our wonderful counselor is that he can not only give you the guidance and the advice and the instruction that you need, he has the empower, the power to enforce the solution as well. This is our wonderful counselor. So our hope is in the wonderful counselor, the one that goes beyond understanding, who can speak into our every need and who can give us the strength to get to where we need to go in every need that we face. And one of the moments that Jesus had with the Pharisees, we see it in Luke chapter five, verses 31 to 32. He's talking to the Pharisees and he he tells them, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he tells them this, because this is why the Pharisees don't like him. He said, I've come to call not those who think they're righteous. He was talking to them. He says, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. In other words, you, you, you are right. You got your righteousness down pat just in who you are. How's that working for you? Now I'm putting words in Jesus's mouth, but God forgive me if I'm doing it wrong. But I think he's trying to make a point to get them to understand we are all sick and we all have a need. As righteous as we think we are on our own, we are not. We have a need that can only heal that sickness that comes through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is saying we need him. We need, we are sick and we need to admit it. We don't want to admit when we're sick, right? A lot of us don't. When we get sick, we don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want to go sit at the doctor's office because I I don't want to admit that I'm sick. I don't want to waste that time. I don't want to hear what he has to tell me. He's going to tell me something I don't want to hear. And we especially don't want to go if it's a counselor. Most of the time. 
Because, because there's this stigma for some reason, this thought that comes, well, if I go to a counselor, that means I, that, that is an ultimate sign of weakness that I can't even handle life on my own. That, that people are going to think I'm crazy because I'm going to a counselor. Well, I just want to say today, if Jesus Christ himself is known as a wonderful counselor, there's probably some okay to having to go to a counselor if you need to go to a counselor every now and then. Let's just break that stigma. Okay. There are some good counselors out there that can give you spiritual and healthy guidance to help you in your life. But Jesus Christ, if we look at him, he's the wonderful counselor. And without a doubt, we need to be willing to sit down with the wonderful counselor. And we need to listen to what the wonderful counselor has to speak to us. The, the author of Hebrews said this about our wonderful counselor, our, our great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, he says, so, since then, so then, since we have a great high priest, who's also known as a wonderful counselor, who's entered into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. And then what does he say in verse 15? This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings that we do. Yet he didn't sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it most. This is our wonderful counselor. He he doesn't just speak into our lives from an educational standpoint. He doesn't just speak into our lives from seeing what's happening to other people and, and saying this can help us. Those can be good things, but he goes beyond that. He speaks into our life because he understands what we're facing. He understands what we're going through. He knows where we are. He knows the hurt, the pain, the sickness we feel. And he speaks into that when right in our time of need, right when we need him. You know, this time of year does have a way, you know, joked earlier about the time of year, but, but this time of year has a way of magnifying our needs. The studies show that, that this time of year uh, just increases those who have the, the need in those who have anxiety, who have, who deal with depression, with stress, with loneliness, with sense of hopelessness in their life. This time of year, it, it, it magnifies that. But if we're honest, we all have something in our life that there is a need for him to speak into. And it might be magnified right time and right, right at this moment in life, but we also may need it to be pointed out at this point in time in our life, what our need is. See, if we're going to sit down with the wonderful counselor, if we're going to put our hope in him, there's a few things I want us to keep in, in mind as we approach the wonderful counselor. A few things we need to know. One of those things is this. We, when we approach the wonderful counselor and we sit down with him, we have got to be completely honest with him. You know, one of the beautiful things about the Psalms, I know there's 151 of them. There's a lot of them. But one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is you see such honesty within them. Such honesty about what the author is feeling in that moment. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you left me? 
There's over and over. We see these types of things because they come to him with an honest expression. But the beauty of it too is by the time they get done writing their expressions and making their expressions, the wonderful counselor has began to speak into them and to reveal who he is to them. And then their expressions begin to change. But it has to start with honesty. We cannot get anywhere without an honest expression. One, uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 62 verse 8 says this, it says, oh, my people trust in him at all times. What does it tell us to do? Pour out your heart to him. Everything that's in your heart, pour it out for God is your refuge. Lay it all out. Let him know what you're thinking. Let him know what you're feeling. Let him know what's in your heart. So just before those words we read just a second ago in Hebrews chapter four, the author tells us that there is nothing that is beyond God's sight. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God, the author says. He sees everything. And he, we are accountable ultimately to him because he sees it all. So in other words, there's nothing that God doesn't already know about us. In fact, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he told them, he said, when you pray, God knows everything you need. He already knows what's in your heart. So just express it honestly to him. Because when we can express it honest, then we realize there's no reason to to run. There's no reason to hide. There's no reason to deny. There's no reason to make excuses. One of my favorite uh, quotes when I was a youth pastor is, yeah, I about to say one of my favorite excuses. One of my, one of my favorite quotes about excuses when, when I was a youth pastor, I would tell the, to the teenagers all the time, they said, excuses are tools of incompetence built on monuments of nothingness, and those who use them seldom ever accomplish anything. I loved it. I don't even know who said it, but I loved it. And, and, and it's always stuck with me because it's so easy to make excuses. But when we're honest... We can't make an excuse. You know, I, I think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, when Jesus was walking, Zacchaeus wanted to see, the scripture tells us he wanted to see Jesus and he wanted to meet Jesus. And we see this moment of honesty with Zacchaeus and Jesus. And Zacchaeus tells him, uh, he makes an honest statement about what's going on and then what, what he's going to do. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, I tell you today, salvation is coming to your home. Now for Zacchaeus, that was literal. Because Jesus Christ, the personification of salvation and hope, was literally going to spend time in Zacchaeus' home. And some people say that 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 passage of Scripture can be translated a couple different ways, which is interesting to me. Some some say that it is that because tax collectors had such a horrible... um, um, they, they were viewed in such a horrible way because they did horrible things. They took advantage of people in this day extremely bad. And so Zacchaeus is admitting and saying, yes, I've done these things and I'm going to repay and give back. And so he's making an honest confession and change. Or some, or some suggest, because of the reading of it, that it could mean that Zacchaeus is defending himself as an honest tax collector, that this is what the people say about me, but Jesus, you know who I am and you know that this is what I do. I give back where it needs to be given back. 
But no matter, no matter what the rendering of it and our understanding of it in, in Zacchaeus' eyes is there's an honesty that's coming from Zacchaeus. This is who I am. This is whether it's the honest change I'm making or whether it's the honesty I live in. This is who I am, Jesus. And because of his honesty, Jesus wanted to go spend time with him. We need to be honest with God about where we are. And as we're honest about God, he's going to begin to work. And, and, and God doesn't just change our circumstances. In fact, sometimes, like Pastor Brian said during worship earlier, he may not change the circumstances at all. But he changes us in the circumstances. And he changes how we respond to the circumstances. And that's what's impo- important. A.W. Tozer, he made this statement. He says, you cannot come to God with bargaining and with promises, but if you'll throw yourself recklessly upon God, trust his character, trust the merits of his son, you'll have the petition you've asked of him. You can have this confidence in God and you can have this respect for his will. Do not expect God to perform miracles for you though so you can write books about them. And then he goes on, he says, but if you're in trouble and concerned about your situation and what willing to be honest with God, You can have confidence in him. You can go to him in the merit of his son, claiming his promises, and he will not let you down. God will help you, and you'll find the way of deliverance. Be completely honest. James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 5, said, if any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, if you need to sit down with someone to get counsel, to get guidance, then sit down with the wonderful counselor who gives generously, and he will give you what you need. He'll give you the guidance and the direction that you need in your life. And he'll do it without reproach. In other words, he's not going to look at you and disapprove of what you're thinking. He's not going to look at and disapprove of, of your attitude in your heart. He's not going to look at you and rebuke you. He's not going to look at you and condemn you. He's going to look at you and then he's going to help heal you. So we need to be honest about where we are, about what we're facing, about what we're going through. And then we need to have a desire for God to work and to change and do what needs to be done. A desire and a willingness for whatever needs to happen will happen. We talked last week about Hosea and Gomer. We said Hosea told Gomer, said there's some habits that are going to have to be broken. There's some painful realizations that are going to have to become, that we're going to have to come to. There's some sacrifices that are going to have to be made. So, but for us to get to a true place of intimacy, we have to be willing to do these things. See, we have to have a desire and be willing to do what needs to be done to get to the healing that we need to see. Oftentimes we want that quick fix. We don't want to go through the process, but sometimes there's a process that has to be going, that that has to go through to deal with the, the, the choices or the decisions or whatever it is that maybe even got us to the place we're in, in the first point. But we have to be honest. We have to be willing and have desire for God to move. And then lastly, we, we have got to be willing to listen and obey and whatever God tells us and however God leads us. James, right after he told him, if, if you need wisdom, ask. He says, but do it with faith and don't, don't doubt. Because the person that doubts is tossed around. He's saying, be willing to come and listen and don't, don't question the direction that God may want to lead you. Just trust him. And we said Ahaz didn't want to ask God for a sign. I don't think it was that Ahaz was being spiritual and saying, I, I don't, I'm not going to test the Lord God that way. I think Ahaz just didn't want to hear what God wanted to tell him. 
Ahaz had been making poor decisions for, for, for Israel. And Ahaz didn't want to, to go where the, the way that God was going to lead him. See, when Jesus, when Jesus performed his first miracle at the wedding feast, Mama Mary spoke some powerful words. She looked at the guys that were with Jesus. She told Jesus, you need, you know, it's time. You do something. Jesus said, well, Jesus told her, it's not my time. And mama said, yes. And so Jesus said, okay. Isn't that something that Jesus obeyed his mother? That's so, that's amazing to me. But, but then she looked at the people that were with him and they, and she said this, she said, go with him and do whatever he tells you to do. There was such a powerful foreshadowing of who Jesus was to us. When the disciples were with Jesus on the mountain, it's this moment that we know of as the Mount of Transfiguration. Scripture tells us that God spoke through the heavens and he said to them, this is my son whom I love. And then he said these words. He said, listen to him. In other words, don't just hear the words he's saying. Listen to them and be guided by them. Obey them, follow them. We have got to be willing to listen to what God says, listen to the direction, listen to the voices that God puts in our life and then follow the direction that God is speaking to us through those voices and through that life. Now, yes, we want our problems to be fixed. But the thing that's so great about the wonderful counselor is he may not necessarily just immediately fix our problems, but his presence is always with us in the middle of those problems. We have a wonderful counselor that doesn't just sit down with us and speak into our need and then tell us to go and I'll see you again in a few days. Those counselors can have a great impact in our life, but the wonderful counselor speaks into our need and then walks with us in every situation. He walks with us in that. In fact, Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm sending you one who would be a counselor to be with you in the Holy Spirit. So Paul could write these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, saying, we might be pressed, but we're not crushed. We might be perplexed, but we're not in despair. We might be persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We might be knocked down and pushed out, but we're not destroyed. Why? Because our wonderful counselor walks with us through all of it. So when your hope is in the wonderful counselor, Your hope is in the one that is beyond all understanding who can speak into every need that you have in your life. And not only can he speak into it, he can direct, he can guide, and he can strengthen you with his power through all of it to get you from where you are to where you need to be. That's our wonderful counselor. And that's who our hope as a believer can be in. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.